Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science. For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Support your body with radically better nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with my amazing and funny co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient, the <laughs> Center of Las Vegas. Hi, I think you left off inappropriate on that list of adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? We're doing great. It's fabulous. We just crack each other up, don't we? <laughs> uh, the reason why we're all giggling today <laughs> is we're because right before we hopped on to record, we were... We were reminiscing about a recent email thread that was going on amongst the three of us having to do with some communication about some male factor. So, Carrie, do you want to enlighten us? Give us the backstory, Carrie. So a couple, sometime in the past few episodes, we were talking about a protocol to help improve sperm, which involves multiple ejaculations. And so I was filling them in on a patient of mine who is on her third cycle. The first two were kind of craptacular. Um, like she, we got embryos, but they ended in miscarriage. And so this third one, we were doing absolutely everything we could to improve sperm quality. And so when we did this, um, I had found a paper that a couple papers actually that talked about multiple ejaculations leading up to retrieval. Instead of a two to five day <laughs> abstinence period, you like have the guy ejaculate six to seven times within the course of 24 hours leading up to his retrieval. Wow. When I suggested this to my patient, he was like, are you kidding me? You're going to wheel me out of there in a wheelchair in order to do this. And so Abby, uh, being the academician that she is, she requested- No, I actually have a patient that might benefit from this, Carrie, and that's why I requested it. I just got embryo results back and they're phenomenal. Are they really? Wow. Well, there you go. Like I'm waiting on genetics, but still like the prelim stuff is really looking good. And so, um, so Abby sent me an email that requested the documentation. And so I naturally (laughs) being the obliging physician that I am sent back an email entitled multiple ejaculations and (laughs) with two documents attached. And so Abby sent me back this really lovely, polite email that said, thank you so much for your information on multiple ejaculations to which the the Gmail suggested responses are my pleasure. (laughs) 
And so I, I have shown that to, I don't know how many of my friends, all the physicians, of course, and they like, this has given so many people so much joy, not even like multiple ejaculations aside, it's given so many people so much joy. So all these people are like, who's that Abby Evelyn person that wants to know about multiple ejaculations? Yeah. Yeah. There were a few people who were, uh, uh, thinking like, is she casting some shade here on the, like, is she making fun of you? And I'm like, oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Bless her heart. Yeah. <laughs> from yeah a- so then I, I would just said, I've, I've, for some reason, I deleted that email. I can't imagine why, but at some, some reason I accidentally deleted it. And I really want to know, I really want to know what the paper says. And so I was just saying, can you send that paper on masturbation to me? And I'm like, wait a minute. No, it's multiple ejaculations. So <laughs> then we all kind of started laughing at that. Yeah. On the other hand, other hand, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. we, digress. we digress. How about a couple of questions today? Let's How do about it. it? Okay. So our first one is, I recently found her podcast and can't seem to find any episodes to specifically discuss my issue. If you have any insight, I would be very thankful. I believe I haven't gotten pregnant due to bacterial vaginosis. Let me explain the situation. My husband and I have used condoms our entire relationship, five years. We started trying for a baby in August of 2023, currently on cycle six of trying. In September, I noticed a fishy smell after sex. He did too. I Googled and learned about BV and made an appointment with my OB-GYN. They cultured it and showed four plus E. coli, four plus group B strep, strep out of black dye, one plus enterococcus, and was prescribed Cipro 250 BID times seven days out of characters. So I will continue. Oh, sorry. And then they she went on that she said she started um, seed probiotic in August, um, continued to try through the fall months. In December, started f- smelling a fishy odor again, made another appointment. Culture again showed similar bacteria, was again given Cipro. Um, in January, midway through the cycle, um, she started noticing the BV smell again. Recurrent issue, I believe, is causing me not to get pregnant. I have read about the acidity of the vagina causing the sperm to die quickly. The pH imbalance causes the fishy smell and death of sperm. The only cure is to wear a condom, which is not very helpful when you're trying to <laughs> into take antibiotics. Help. So I would say back in the day, we did like postcoital tests and kind of really looked at all that. You know, we would have treated it with antibiotics. I mean, the vagina has lots and lots of germs in the vagina, or, or there's lots of germs in the vagina. Really, the question is, does it damage the sperm? And, you know, I would argue that if the sperm is deposited in the vagina, it might. It sounds like you've been treated, although it doesn't sound like it's gone away. But really, the bigger issue is how much sperm can get up inside the uterus. And so it's been a while since I've talked to anybody about BV. But um, but ultimately, I mean, I think if you if you were to do like IUIs, that might be more helpful. It would get the sperm up closer to where it needs to be and kind of bypass all of that stuff that could be damaging the sperm. So there's been associations on like preterm delivery and BV uh, that have been known for a while. When you look at the actual infertility stuff, there is a 2020 meta-analysis and systemic review that showed kind of maybe a loose correlation between BV and infertility. Um, but the the odds ratio is like 1.72, which for our listeners, odds ratios are essentially, and I'm not a statistician, so don't come for me in the comments, but <laughs> essentially how likely is this to actually cause a problem? So it was 1.72. So it means, yes, it's more likely to cause a problem, but it's very different than the association between like lung cancer and cigarette smoking, which is 
uh, somewhere deep into the 20s. I mean, they're an undeniable relationship. So it was kind of a loose association. And what they ultimately concluded after reviewing these like 15-ish studies was that there's there is an association, but it doesn't really tell us how it works. And it doesn't really tell us like, what do you do? How do you fix it? And, and is this really a causative measure? And so what I would probably approach is like, if you can't get rid of it, and you you've tried everything, like try an IUI, get the get the sperm past the point where they need to, and see if that that makes a difference, particularly if you've been trying for a long time and it hasn't worked, it's worthwhile to get the rest of the workup because you can have two things coexist at the same time. You can have a consistent BV infection along with issues with sperm, with uterus, with tubes, with ovaries, whatever. And so it's worth getting all the information before you really work hard at the plan because you don't want to burn time that you otherwise could be using to get knocked up. Another thing to consider is realize you've taken two courses of Cipro. And although Cipro is a very nice big guns, um, it's not what I would have ever thought is the first yeah. line of treating BV. Yeah. And, um, which is something called metronidazole or flagyl. Um, and so, you know, it, it sounds like you have multiple bacteria going on. There is a test through a company called iGenomics. It's their Emma and Alice test that t- actually tests for good bacteria and bad bacteria bad bacteria, um, both within the endometrium and within kind of the vaginal flora type of thing. And so that might be a good test. The reason why I do like this in kind of resistant situations is they actually have a listing of the different bacteria that come up positive and also what medications you are that those bacteria are sensitive to. Um, I've had a couple of people before that I've actually had to do a combination of a couple of different things to get everything cleared up and and where it needs to be. You know, it's good to be taking a good probiotic and that type of thing. But again, Cipro isn't what I would have um, started with. Yeah. Um, and it, mm-hmm. it, it, you've taken the same thing twice, which means it's time to look at something else. So mm-hmm. it's something else to kind of keep in mind. Um, let's do one more question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when would you recommend having a hysteroscopy? I have a history of stage four endo and had surgery four years ago with no symptoms returning. We now have done three rounds of IUI and a HSG and everything looks great, but sadly the procedures were unsuccessful. Since I'm not struggling with endometriosis symptoms prior, my doctor recommends moving directly to IVF instead of a hysteroscopy. Ooh. Should I immediately move to IVF or should we pause and have the procedure first? Would my ultrasounds and HSG have been able to identify any endometriosis issues that would interfere with IVF? A lot of layers there. So first of all, <laughs> hysteroscopy is not going to help you figure out endometriosis. Uh-uh. Endometriosis is the cells that are inside the uterus that you would look at a hysteroscopy, but they're in other places. Okay. So a hysteroscopy is helpful in determining do we have polyps, fibroids, um, adhesions, anything else on the inside of the uterus that's causing us issues. And you'll probably get that if you go into IVF anyway. I mean, that's kind of like a corollary to IVF. Or saline ultrasound. Yeah. Uh, Something to look inside your cavity. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, I would not routinely recommend a laparoscopy just for the sake of doing a laparoscopy because you're going trying to make a decision with IVF. If you have stage four IVF in the past, I mean, sorry, stage endometrius. Yeah. Um, the likelihood is even though you're not having symptoms, there probably has been some recurrence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very Definitely good in four years. <laughs> and 
realistically, IVF is going to be an appropriate treatment. You may need some suppression prior to doing your embryo transfer. So perhaps testing for BCL6 or just going ahead and and doing um, uh, some suppression um, prior to your embryo transfer might improve your odds. But um, I think the most important thing is understanding that hysteroscopy isn't figuring out endometriosis-related issues. I think the easy answer to your question is yes. Yes, you do IVF. <laughs> yes, you do a hysteroscopy. I would probably wait to do the hysteroscopy till after you have embryo and you've stimulated everything to high heaven and let it settle down and then go in and do it. But um, yes, that's the answer. Do it all. Because um, it's all relevant to what you want. And so it it makes sense. There is a place for everything in that treatment. Endometriosis doesn't impact the uterus to the same extent. It, that you can see. And so some of the suppressive method, methods that Susan was bringing up are really relevant, but there's there's other stuff that can happen. And so you just want to kind of go down the list and check it all off. And and unfortunately, it's not that hard to do. Um, a hysteroscopy is, qualifies as annoying more than anything else, but it's a quick in and out. There's relatively little risk with it. And compared to all the other things that we do to people, like, eh, it's not so bad. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. All right, so we are going to move on to our topic of today. So today we're going to talk a little bit about something called carrier screening. Um, when you present to your reproductive endocrinologist at your first visit, carrier screening is something that I would say most of us probably discuss at, at some length. So could one of you kind of talk a little bit about what is, what's the basics of carrier screening? Why do we do it? So carrier screening is screening that we do for single gene abnormalities, little tiny changes in your chromosome. And it's a, and, and we do it regardless of race or ethnicity. Um, we look at everybody the same. We used to think that if you were Caucasian, we checked for cystic fibrosis. If you were African-American, we che checked for sickle cell anemia. I always tell my patients, we all know now that we're kind of mutts. We, we all have all kinds of traits and there's really no way that you can base what test you're going to do on somebody's race or ethnicity. And so really it makes sense to screen everybody for all these conditions. And right now we can really do it financially a lot cheaper than we used to. So the, the benefit for you, the reason to do it when you go to your initial screen is we want to look at things that affect your baby's life in the first two years that it cause, could cause death or significant disability so that a, a diagnosis potentially could be made quicker or so that um, if you, this was a condition you, that you absolutely wanted to avoid and never wanted to have a child with this, you could actually do a treatment IVF and do testing for that trait that you and your partner carry to prevent you from having a baby that is infected by that condition. So looking at carrier screening, when people say, oftentimes people will come into our office and say, I want all the genetic screening. And um, <laughs> and then we'll start to go down this path. Now, it's very important to realize that genetic screening that we do for carrier screening is different than what we do for PGTA, is different than what they do on the first trimester screen once you're pregnant, is different than what they do at an anatomy scan. Like all of these things look at genetics, but genetics is a really big umbrella and it covers a lot of things. And so carrier screening is different than 
PGTA and first trimester and all the rest of it. So that's that's the first thing that you need to know. When we are looking at carrier screening, we are not looking at every single gene. So when you look at what is a gene versus a chromosome versus your full genetic code, um, the the way that you kind of think about it is that the the full genetic code is a book. So you need you need all of it to go to get all the information. Each individual chromosome is a page within that book or probably a chapter. Let's go chapter. Chapter in the book. Yeah. I yeah. Because that. if you're, if you're missing that chapter, the whole thing doesn't make sense. It will not fly. You cannot do it. If you have a duplicate chapter, again, doesn't make sense. Will not fly. Cannot do it. Book is ruined. Um, when you are talking about genes, you're talking about a single page. Now, there are some pages that you can pull out and they're, they're, they don't change the nature of the book. There are other pages where if you pull them out or duplicate them or something like that, you mess them up, that the whole thing gets ruined. Like if you tear out the page that reveals who the killer is, then <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how good the rest of the book is. It's not a good book anymore. And so... What we are looking at with carrier screening is the the specific pages, as opposed to PGTA, which is looking at, do you have all those chapters? And so the specific types of genes that we're looking for, there's usually two different kinds that carrier screening focuses on. And the biggest kind is autosomal recessive conditions. And what autosomal recessive means is that Everybody carries these two copies of the genes, right? So most of the time you've got you've got two functioning copies. So whatever the gene is responsible for, whatever chore around the house gets done. Sometimes you have both copies that are faulty. In this case, you have you have the problem. So if you figure this gene codes for doing the dishes, if you've got two normal ones, all the dishes get done. If you have two faulty ones, the dishes never, ever get done, and they just pile up in the sink forever and ever, amen, and it just doesn't work. And a week later, you're living in a condemned cesspit that nobody, that's not fit for living. <laughs> Maybe not a week, but you know. So <laughs> where the important thing is, is that if you have one functioning gene and one non-functioning gene, this is one, one person in that house is doing all the dishes. So even though the other one is not showing up for that chore, stuff is still getting done and you don't notice a problem. So this is why we offer this on absolutely everybody, because you can have one functioning and one non-functioning gene and you are fine. Your family is fine. Your partner is fine. And your partner's family is fine. At least with respect to this gene, we're not commenting on any other behaviors. So... <laughs> When when you have these two people who come together, they can both pass down a gene that does not do the dishes. And so it seems like it comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden you have a child that's affected. And like uh, like the girl said, we are primarily looking at things that are big, bad, and ugly that you really, really do not want to have affecting your child. So that's why we're looking at it. There are a few what I think of as piddly nothing. I wish they would take them off the list kind of genes in there. Yeah. Tinidase deficiency comes to mind, which- Amen. Why <laughs> I the hell they tinidase deficiency. Oh my God. If they would just pull that one, I would be the happiest little REI ever. Um, but most of them are big, bad, and ugly. Most of them we really care about. And if you have two copies in a child, of which there is a very high percentage when both parents carry one copy, so it's a 25% chance that this kid's going to be affected- then that that makes us want to take the next step, know about that ahead of time, and counsel appropriately. So, Abby, there are some other types of genes that we test in carrier screening, specifically um, X-linked 
diseases. Can you mm-hmm. um, let our listeners know a little bit about X-linked conditions? So X-linked conditions, it's really interesting in the test that I think Carrie and Susan and I all use, they don't, they don't test men for these. And the reason they don't is because X-linked means it comes from the female. So as a female, if you're female, you have two X chromosomes. If you have a son, you only pass one of your chromosomes to that son and the other gene is a Y. So most of what happens, well, maybe I shouldn't say that, but most of what happens in a, in a person comes from their X gene. Partner only contributes a Y if it's a boy. And so if it turns out that it's a boy, whatever that condition is, that child can be affected by that abnormality. It doesn't have another X gene, kind of like what Carrie was talking about. It doesn't have another um, set of chromosomes to tell it how to, how to work if one of them is defective on the X chromosome. Random factoid, how many functional genes are on the Y chromosome? Ooh, I don't know. That's a good a good question. Tell us, because I don't want to be embarrassed at how wrong I am. <laughs> I've heard this before, but I, can, I have no idea, no recall on I this. I think it's right around like nine. <laughs> oh, really? See, I thought it was more like a hundred or something, but I, yeah, I have no, no idea. No, to, now, now I got to go. Now, now we got to find that out. I, I remember, I'll try and have it by the end of the episode. I remember looking at, I remember hearing that in med school and going, really? What? Yeah, I will look that up. But it's some it's some piddly number when you consider the the thousands that the X chromosome is responsible for. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. So another thing for us to talk about a little bit is that sometimes with these tests, there are certain genes that they can tell that there is a gene issue, but they aren't always sure if it's a recessive or a dominant gene. And when this happens, so a dominant gene is one of those things that you only need to have one copy. And you usually think, hey, if I have a dominant gene, I'm going to know this by now. Well, that's not always the case because sometimes the way a disease presents with a dominant gene, the the disease is sometimes less significant, less noticeable. And if you have the recessive type, that's the type that we notice it, especially in kiddos and things like that. And so when we're sitting there talking to you, sometimes they'll be like, well, you may have instead of a one in four chance, if you have a partner with a certain condition, you could have a 50% chance because they can't really tell if it's dominant or recessive. I actually just had a patient this week that it was pretty interesting. She had one of these conditions. So I started asking about her history and this specific condition affects multiple different systems, but specifically the kidneys. And she actually has multiple distant relations, but people that she knows within her family that are on dialysis currently. And I'm like, hmm. That makes you think. Number one, speak to the geneticist. Number two, we need to go have you see a a nephrologist first. Yeah. want to make sure you're as healthy as we think you are. And this is the time when we might want to be making making some decisions. Now, before we start getting into the whole decision-making, there's, there's three sets of people who I think of when they come into our clinic that, that um, have, have some, some things to say about carrier screening. Okay, so the first set of people, uh-huh. Before we start with that, I was going to say there's a couple of other types of genetic abnormalities that I want to talk about too. So like, there's things that we find. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Susan. If you want to finish your thought, then we'll go no, back to okay. that. All right. <laughs> so sometimes on some of the tests, and not all the tests do this now, they'll check for recessive traits that most of the time, if you have a copy of them, it's not a problem. But there's a couple of different ones. There's factor 5 Leiden and prothrombin 2, which could actually have an impact on your health history. 
And so that's, they can cause clotting disorders and it's not common even if you carry it, but it's definitely something you'd want your primary care doctor to know. You'd want your surgeon to know if you're going to have surgery, if you're traveling long distances, you want to stay hydrated and get up and move around because you're a little bit tiny, but higher risk of clotting. Sometimes we find in some patients that are carriers, it can, it can cause things like clotting during surgery. So that's a type of gene, even though it's uh, only one copy and you have the one copy, it could be important for you. The other thing that I thought Susan was going to talk about a second ago was genes that have, un- they're unclear whether or not they're bad genes or not. So you have a partner who has one gene abnormality. You have another partner who has a gene abnormality that could cause the same condition, but it's, they don't know if it's pathologic. They don't know if it's bad or not. And I've seen that go two different ways. I've had most of the couples that have that, from what I know and from you know the pregnancy that they had, turned out fine. I had one couple that had a bad gene that caused clotting. Part, one partner had it. The other partner had something that was bearable. They didn't think it was a problem. And it turns out it was really severe and they had um, a fetal death because of that. So, so those are kind of the other things. I think the one thing to point out about this is nothing's 100% perfect. No matter how we counsel you, we can't say with absolute certainty that you're baby's not going to have this condition. We just give you a, a risk assessment, basically. Carrie? Carrie? So, number one, I grossly <laughs> aligned the Y chromosome. It's closer to 100 to maybe 200 genes. I said 100. <laughs> as opposed to the X chromosome, which is 900 to about 1,400. Oh, okay. So, okay. I grossly maligned them, but I wasn't wrong. <laughs> um, so, I Y chromosome, I apologize. I did not mean to insult you in such a way. The second thing is one of the other gene types that can be picked up, and this is one of the squirrely things that can get picked up on a carrier screen, is Fragile X is the primary. I was about to Fragile X. Yeah. And so, Fragile X is, you know, obviously an X chromosome issue. But what makes this one challenging is that it's not just affected versus unaffected. There's yes. of gray in here. So each, each chromosome, each gene is made up of these what are called triplet repeats. So three little building blocks that are put together in a specific manner. And there is there is a string of them that are designed to be the same set of building blocks again and again and again and again and again and again. And, again. and so that is normal. That's expected. That's what we want. But the number of those building block sets is very important. And so when you have uh, a specific number, you're you're in the normal range. When you go up a click where you've got higher, you're in what's considered kind of an indeterminate range. You are not affected by a problem. Your child is not going to be affected by a problem, but you're in this range where future generations may be affected. This typically doesn't change anything that that particular person or oftentimes even their child is going to do, but later on can be relevant for, you know, grandkids, great grandkids, and so on. Mm -hmm. The next stage of numbers of repeats, so the next block up, is a premutation. So this is someone who is, she is not affected by fragile X with the particularly developmental delays, intellectual disabilities that are associated with it. But- she may see some of the adjacent syndromes. There's one that's an ataxia syndrome, so a movement disorder. And there's one that is very relevant to our field, which is an ovarian insufficiency that happens at a much earlier age than what we would consider normal or standard. And so pre-mutation carriers, one, have their own medical conditions to think about because a percentage of them will be affected by this ovarian insufficiency as well as the ataxia or movement disorder. Also, 
that area of building blocks and the number of them is considered to be unstable, meaning it can potentially grow in future generations, most importantly in your child. So when you get to the next set, next number of building blocks up, those are considered full mutations. And those full mutations are impacted by all of the things that go along with fragile X. And so whereas you know, the the woman involved may or may not be affected by anything. If she's got a premutation, she might have insufficiency, ovarian insufficiency. She might have a movement disorder, but she might not. And and even oh. if we don't have ovarian insufficiency, there's good data to support that it may be more challenging to get you pregnant, even if your ovaries are still working, quote, normally. Mm-hmm. I often encourage these individuals to be a little more aggressive than less aggressive because it it, it is it is more challenging to actually achieve pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at these patients who carry fragile X mutations, pre-mutations, or indeterminate regions, the, the counseling involved is a lot more complex. Like that's worth probably its own appointment with a genetic counselor. And one of the nice things about at least the 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 genetic carrier screening that the three of us use is that there's a genetic counseling session included with it. And so it allows people to talk with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Um, and, and get we just know enough to be dangerous about these conditions. We don't really know know what a genetics counselor knows. So we always tell all of our patients, no matter what, even if you and your partner don't carry the same thing, you need to talk to the genetics counselor because, you know, you may want to, you know, hopefully you are going to have a future baby and, you know, if these are some conditions that your child needs to be aware of, like fragile eggs, you know, you want to have the information available so you can talk to your child about it at some point in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. So sometimes people come to us with thoughts about carrier screening, and I wanted to kind of address some of these big things. So sometimes people have done some testing through like 23andMe. Is that a... Okay, everybody is stunned into silence here. <laughs> I didn't hear what your question was, but I just know when people bring me that, I think 23andMe lists the actual genetic mutations. And the problem is that you, you need to have somebody that can interpret that information and really tell you how it's significant for you. And, you know, having a mutation like cystic fibrosis is a little different than not being able to taste, you know, something or having a stronger bitter taste than sweet taste or, you know, that's why it's what well, our tests that we do are geared toward children in the first two years of life. And as I was saying before, that cause it causes severe mutations or would result in disability or death. And it's really hard to look at something like 23andMe and be able, even if we had the, the raw genetic data, be able to figure out what you carried and what you didn't. And when we get the results from the, like the panels that we order, and there's a handful of companies out there that do this, but we are getting very specific. This is the specific area of the genes that's changed. This is what it, you know, theoretically should be. This is what it is. This is associated with a pathogenic, meaning disease-causing condition. This is a variant of unknown significance, meaning it's different. We don't know if it's a problem or not. Or this is a an unknown variant that trends pathologic. So we don't know exactly, but we kind of think this one's bad. And so we will get all that specific information. The important thing about that is that is specific enough if we need to do something about it, that we can. And so when when there's just a, you know, you may have an abnormality here, that that's not actionable. And the number of genes that we're checking has exploded in recent years. So I remember when I was when I was a resident, there were three things that we checked and we thought that we were hot stuff because we checked those three things. Yeah. 
And now, that is not the same as the tests we do now. <laughs> yeah. Now the the stuff that we order routinely, like I think mine's got 445 on it for women. And there's there are panels that look at over 500 now. And I would not be surprised within the next couple of years if we're into the thousands. Yeah. How, how do the tests that say the three of us order differ from what, if you've had carrier screening done with your OB-GYN, how does that differ most likely compared to what we do? Well, I mean, all OBGYNs have access to the same tests that we do, but generally I find mostly in our community that they're a little hesitant to order ones that have lots and lots of different mutations. Um, I think for us, we know that if we find these things and, and if we find that you both carry the same recessive trait, we have something that can fix that. We can do IVF, we can check embryos for that. And so I think that's kind of the big difference. Um, the one thing I was going to say too is if you decide to do this, you really want to make sure that they they that you have the same test done because we've had situations where one partner may have had this test by a company three years ago. The next partner comes, has the test done by the same company. And like Carrie was saying, every year there's some changes. They add things. Sometimes they take a few things away that are not very pathologic. So the tests are sort of in evolution. You know, the geneticists are trying to produce a test that really is actionable, that will give you something that you, you know, if there's an issue there, let you know that you need to do something about that. So the tests are always changing. So it's really important. If you have an abnormal trait, you make sure that your partner had a test that looked for the same abnormal trait. If you had the newest version, chances are, if you tested positive some, sometimes for that, something on the newest version, we wouldn't see it on his version if it wasn't added to the panel. So you always have to make sure that you're that both of you have been tested for the same abnormal trait that at least one of you have. Exactly. And to put the the list of things that people that they look at for twenty three and me, I just pulled up the report while we're while we've been talking because I haven't I haven't looked at it in a while. But um, asparagus odor detection detection <laughs> bald spot bitter taste bunions cheek dimples cilantro taste aversion dandruff earlobe type. I don't care about any of these with respect to your medical health. Like if yes. you've got attached versus free earlobes, I think that is wonderful regardless. And <laughs> all not three sure of us are like showing off our earlobes. Here. I don't know what mine are. I think mine, I don't know. You've mine got free. You're free. I'm, a free I'm a free. Okay. Yeah. Are you attached? Yeah. No, mine, mine are free. And I think Susan's, yours are free. Oh, we're all free. Must yeah. be a dominant trait. Um, it is. <laughs> uh, now you're going to look at every celebrity and wonder, do you have attached or Um, But all of those are things that medically, that's not going to change anything we do. And so the tests that we're looking at are very much geared toward what is big, bad, and ugly do we want to avoid for you and your child? If What, what about the situation where um, we have a person or a couple and one or the other have had kids before and they're like, there's nothing wrong with my other kids. Do I really need to do this test? Yes, you do, because yes. there's no way that you know what you carry unless you have the test done. And and I always use the example of my patients. You know, you could be walking around with cystic fibrosis, being a carrier for cystic fibrosis. You, Your partner may be a carrier for spinal muscular atrophy. They're all bad, both bad conditions. But as long as you carry them, as long as you don't both have the same trait, it doesn't matter. But those traits can be passed along to your children. So absolutely, you want to be tested. There's no way that you would know what you carry if it's a recessive trait. You, you have no manifestations of that. Absolutely. One thing I do want to mention is, you know, sometimes people are like, well, if I were to do this type of testing, it wouldn't make a difference in anything I would do in the future. Well, I, I would beg to differ. Okay. And granted, it may not make a difference in how you decide to reproduce. So you may decide 
IVF is not what we want to do. We want to roll the genetic lottery. We're going to do something with intercourse or insemination, whatever that may be. However, there's, there is power in knowledge. Okay. And so if you know that you are pregnant and you have a baby that has a 25% chance of having blank disease, I'm just going to call cystic fibrosis because that's one of the most common and it's, it's a, it's a very significant disease. Mm, switch it. Do SMA. Do okay. SMA. Yeah. That's, that's so, much more pathologic. SMA, spinomuscular atrophy. So very, very debilitating condition. Most babies die within the first couple of years of life very, very significant. The decisions you would make after birth or even where you decide to deliver, what type of doctor delivers you, what other doctors are going to need, you're going to need to have access to immediately. What are your ch- plans for childcare? Are, are you planning on staying home? Are you planning on using daycare or a nanny? What additional services might you need? These are all very real things that you may be faced to deal with. And if you have time and knowledge that you can prepare for those things, as challenging as it may be to care for a child with SMA, you're going to be able to have more resources at your disposal and be able to learn and educate yourself more if that's what would end up happening. The reason I suggested SMA specifically is because there are a couple of different types of treatments available, and the treatments are amazing compared to what used to be out there. I mean, it used to be this was an absolute death sentence within Mm -hmm. the first few years of life. Now, there, there was a treatment, I forget how long ago, a few years ago, that was developed that, uh, more than a few years ago now, that was developed that stalled progression of the disease. And so whenever you caught it, once you were able to start this treatment, you arrested its its progress. And so you still had whatever deficits you had, but they didn't get worse. Since that time, there is a new treatment that stops it completely. Oh, wow. Once the damage is done, you can't go back. But if you get this gene therapy, your kid can be normal. But you have to know that as early as possible because this is not an instantaneous, we make the diagnosis the next week you're getting the treatment. It takes quite some time, months, if not longer, to get all of the financial, the regulatory, the prep work, like all of that done. So if you know from the very beginning, this child has SMA, you get that all started, that kid gets the treatment as soon as possible, and they can maybe lead a normal life. Yeah, and to add to that... Um, I would say, and you kind of alluded to this, you know, when when a child is born with some sort of genetic condition, sometimes it can be really difficult to figure out what they have. They may have some heart manifestation of it. They may have some kidney manifestation. They may have some neuromuscular thing. And so we think that on average, if some child is born or what they have shown, if a child is born with some sort of deficit due to some gen- genetic condition, it may take five to seven years. They call it sort of a medical odyssey of going to all these different doctors to try and figure out what's going on before somebody finally puts it all together and says, oh, this is probably a genetic condition. This is probably X, Y, or Z. So even if it doesn't change your plans, even if you still try to get pregnant without IVF, without doing genetic testing, then at least you'll be able to say, okay, we know we both carry SMA and we know that probably if this, if our child is showing these neuromuscular issues, it probably has SMA. And you can, like Carrie said, you can get the treatment that you need much more quickly than you would be able to if you didn't have any clue what the genetic condition would be. Absolutely. Um, So if we know somebody, if we have a 
either a couple or however what it is, we have two copies of a recessive gene. And we've already talked a little bit about that we can do IVF. How how do we use IVF to help minimize their risk? We can so, basically go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, no, go ahead. Because I've got some else to add on afterwards. So you talk about well, that. Go the next like round. Carrie said, when we do these tests, we know the actual gene. We know the, the problem. And it, and sometimes cystic fibrosis is a good example of this. Sometimes there's many different changes, deletions, additions, point mutations that can make a difference in terms of you being a carrier versus your partner. And so just because Delta F508 is the most common one, that doesn't mean that's the one that you both have. And so it's really important to figure out what unique mutation you both have in order to develop probes. And probes are just basically like markers that kind of highlight where on the DNA there's a problem. And by doing that, we can determine if your embryo has one copy of it or if it's affected with two copies or it's not a carrier at all. And so when we do IVF, we would usually choose to transfer an embryo that's either completely unaffected or it's just a carrier and not transfer an embryo that has both copies that can be affected. When you're making those probes, sometimes you will need information from other family members. Just because you know that those two two specific mutations exist in whoever's providing egg and sperm doesn't necessarily mean that they can create a probe for it. There are some that are more complex because it's not enough to know just that you carry that specific mutation. You need markers out on either side to show that those markers are there, meaning you know the neighbors on either side are home. And that means that if you are not home, it is you're legitimately not home and they're, you're missing whatever the important part is. And so sometimes you have to have other people. Like I have a patient who she's got aversion to muscular dystrophy and they can't make probes for it. And so what we had to do is we had to, you know, help her have a child that we knew wasn't going to be affected because girls are not affected in this case and boys are so that we could test her female children and add that to the information so that later on, if, you know, if we need to use male embryos, we have that ability. And so just because you know the mutation doesn't guarantee that you can make a pro, but it at least makes it a lot more likely. But I think an important thing to understand is when it comes to carrier screening, if you are a carrier for something and you have siblings, then your siblings also have a chance of being carriers for those conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as she mentioned, if you're in the situation where you're needing to do testing on your embryos, we often need like little cheek swabs or something like that um, from other family members. So sometimes patients are a little um, surprised by this um, because they have not shared their fertility journey. And we know that this is a very something that's very personal and private, but we also know that Sometimes having those conversations with other people who may be facing the same things and they don't even realize it can be very important as well. And one thing to consider is that all of this applies even if you're using donor sperm or donor eggs. Mm-hmm. And where it becomes a little trickier is, for example, the test that we prefer to use has over 400 genes on it. And so when I run that on a male or female partner who needs to use opposite gametes that are donors. So, you know, he's got sperm, but he needs an egg donor. She's got eggs. She needs a sperm donor. When the the test is done on the donor, it may not be exactly the same test. So, for example, if you've got a woman who needs sperm, uh, sperm bank sperm, then 
that donor will have received whatever panel is standard at that sperm bank at the time. And so if this is a sperm sample from five years ago, it is still very valid as a sperm sample. Like that part is fine. But the testing that was done five years ago may have had, you know, 100 or 200 genes, not 400. So as a result, she may carry wild screwball gene A, and he has not been tested for wild screwball gene A. What can we do in that So in that situation, what we typically have people do is either um, sometimes they'll just switch to another sperm donor that has had the testing. Sometimes they'll reach out to the sperm bank and say, hey, can you please see if this donor is willing to get tested for this specific gene? And it's, you know, whatever the associated cost for it is, but these tests are not crazy expensive. And so hopefully it's not not too bad. I mean, when we run these tests, they're like, they're a couple hundred dollars each, which in the grand scheme of things is not, not bad at all, especially when you consider what you would spend just for a single genetic test on a child that's got some problem that is affected by something that you don't know. So oftentimes they'll reach out and they'll help figure out, does this donor carry whatever gene? And and that way you have that information. Absolutely. Other thoughts of things we need to talk about having to do with carrier screening. I think we've done a pretty good job at- We've covered a lot. <laughs> we have covered a lot. We have covered a lot. If your partner changes, you need to repeat the genetic screening. Maybe the not- genetics changes, right? <laughs> yeah. If your partner changes, the genetics change. So even if you've had screening, your partner needs to get screening as well to make sure there's no, no drama. And these tests change dramatically. So if you had a baby 10 years ago and you had this, because this can be offered during regular pregnancy as well, um, if you had that genetic screening done- it's not not necessarily the same for two reasons. Number one, when people who've had children before come in, they say, oh yeah, I had genetic screening done on my, my first child. I don't need it done. Well, number one, it might not be the same genetic screening. The genetic testing that's done on babies uh, during pregnancy, yes, you do carrier screening, but you can also do testing for abnormal, abnormal numbers of chromosomes. And that's different. So just because you have the down carrier, down syndrome carrier screening or testing on your first baby and it was normal, that has nothing to do with the carrier screening that we're talking about now. They are two totally different tests. And so a lot of times when you're when your RE looks at you and said, I don't think that's the same, it's it's for that reason. They are two totally different tests and both very useful, but in different ways. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe and leave us, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So make sure to follow us and subscribe and stay updated on all things fertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. And don't forget, we're writing a book on IVF. So if you have anything you think should be included, let us know, either on Instagram or um, and on all of our sites. Take care. Have a great weekend. Bye. Fertility is complex. And while there's a lot we can't control in the journey to parenthood, nutrition is a big one that both partners can this is why we've teamed up with Needed, a perinatal nutrition company that optimizes nutrition for both partners throughout the all stages of pregnancy. They offer a variety of products to support women and their partners on their journey to conception, including their fertility support for two plan. Support your body with radically better nutrition and save 20% off with your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU.
Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science.